that we can all take our seats. Have you seen what you wrote with these people? I address them. Um, welcome to the second se session of what uh, Alejandro Portes has reminded me again. It's a modestly entitled conference, State of the World. We, this morning we were able to figure out exactly 25% of the State of the World. Uh, we are now going to fill in uh, the next 25% by looking at what is perhaps the oldest debate in social science, uh, and that is the relationship between growth and inequality. Uh, this has also become a, 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 an ideological debate. You can probably separate the globalists and anti-globalists by those who would privilege growth as opposed to those who would privilege equality. And you can imagine uh, uh, that you could easily reduce the discourse of both Davos and Seattle to one of those, those, two, those two words. Uh, what we have here today is two very prominent economists who are going to be addressing this. And then we are going to have comments uh, from three uh, very different fields, one economics, one sociology, one historian, uh, by a strange quirk of fate, all working on Latin America. So you will be getting a global view and then a very parochial view from uh, the continent of the, to the south. Yeah, we would contest this. Okay, provincial, provincial view, regional view. Um, what we will do is the same format as this morning. We will ask the two speakers to, to begin, then we'll just take a short break, and then we'll have the comments and questions. So let me begin with Professor Ravi Kambur. He is the T.H. Lee Professor of World Affairs and Professor of Economics at Cornell University. He is the author of articles on such topics as risk-taking, inequality, poverty, structural adjustment, debt, agriculture, and political economy, and is the co-author of the forthcoming Economics for an Imperfect World, Essays in honor of Joseph Stiglitz. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for the uh, for the invitation. It's uh, great to be uh, back in Princeton. Uh, I spent some part of my twenties here. I had a great time. Uh, yesterday, I went to the uh, tap room in the Nassau uh, in the Nassau Inn, and the third booth on the left. Uh, uh, sure enough, my name is still there, carved in the thing. So uh, uh, I left a lasting mark on Princeton. Uh, uh, at least one that's lasted 25 years. Anyway, what I want to do, uh, so thank you very much indeed, Miguel, for, for the invitation uh, back to Princeton. What I want to do today is to look at the uh, first Millennium Development Goal, the first of eight that have been agreed by the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, the international community generally. Uh, the first goal, and, and this is listed as the first goal, but there's also little doubt that it's, the, it's primus into Paris, uh, the first goal is to halve the global incidence of poverty over the 25-year period 1990 to 2015. <clears throat> that is to say we take the percentage of people in the world in 1990 with income or consumption below some critical value, and our target is to halve that percentage by 2015. So if we take, say, $2 a day as the critical cutoff, uh, the World Bank figures show that in 1990, the incidence of poverty, the percentage of people in the world below that critical cutoff was 62%. So the target, therefore, would be to make this number 31% by 2015. That is what we have when we say we, we're buying into the first Millennium Development Goal, the first MDG. <clears throat> now, my own view is that the MDG process is to be hugely welcomed. Uh, it's serving to build a consensus and to target resources. Uh, but what I want to do in this talk is to raise some analytical questions about the number one Millennium Development Goal, the number one MDG. And I want to raise uh, three sets of issues. 
firstly, I want to take the objective at face value and just raise some narrowly defined statistical issues about data and so on. I think it really is worthwhile a quick visit to the sausage factory in this, uh, uh, in, in this area. Uh, secondly, I want to take the objective at face value, but raise the question of how to achieve it. And here, the interplay between growth and inequality and the policies and institutions that might lead to the achievement of, uh, of the target uh, are at issue. And thirdly, I don't, want, I don't want to take the objective at face value. I want to raise some deeper questions about the objective itself. So that's, uh, that's the plan for this, uh, for this talk. Uh, there, is a, there is a paper, which on Monday I'll put on my website, so you can, you can uh, uh, go and have a look at that. So let me just start with the, with the first set of issues on, on statistics. How do we know that the uh, incidence of poverty in 1990 was 60, 62%? And how will we know that in, in, that in 2015 it's above or below 31%? Uh, well, uh, this data is collected from national statistical sources. And what do they do? What do the national statistical sources do? Well, they conduct household surveys. They conduct random household surveys. So you, do a, uh, you, uh, you uh, take the households, you take a random sample, and you go and ask them, what is your consumption of this, of this, of this? What is your income, et cetera, et cetera? Okay? And this raises lots of issues. And Angus Deaton in this university has done a lot of work uh, on that, and indeed in, in publicizing the problems with that, with that approach. But I just want to give you one small example, one small illustration of the sort of issues that can arise, and which we, all, which we have to bear in mind when we take these numbers that are now going to be increasingly bandied about at the, at the global level. You see, to say that you ask a household what its consumption is, say of rice, it's actually not a well-defined question. <laughs> uh, when? Was it, is it today's consumption? Uh, last week's consumption? What did you spend on rice? It's not a well-defined question. Is it yesterday, or in the last seven days, last week, or is it the last four weeks? Whatever. In other words, recall period is a crucial issue in these, uh, in these uh, surveys. Well, uh, last day is probably not long enough as a recall period, because you might have purchased the rice three days ago. A week maybe is long enough, but you know, there might be other fluctuations. And the point is, you, as you extend the recall period, going back, you take care of the sorts of fluctuations that can arise, but actually there's another problem. <laughs> which is that there's recall loss. So in fact, when you ask somebody, how, many, how, much did you spend, how much did you spend on rice in the last week? And then you ask them, how much did you spend in la, uh, on rice uh, in the last four weeks? If you ask them at different times, the answer you get for the second question is not four times the answer you get for the first one. It's something like 3.5 times or 3.4 times. There's a systematic bias as you extend this recall loss period. Now, it doesn't matter really if you hold this, if, you, if, you're looking, if you're interested in comparisons over time, it doesn't really matter if you keep the recall period the same, of course. If in 1990 it was four weeks, and in 2015 it was four weeks, fine. Of course, the problem arises when you use different recall periods at different, at different times. It's actually the problem's even subtler than that. Consider a country which has been for years been using the four week recall period. And then some bright spark says, well, what we're going to do this time is that we're going to use a four-week recall period, and we're going to ask the household a one-week recall period question as well at the same time. So we'll have our four-week figures to compare with the past, and we'll have a uh, one-week figure you know, to do the comparisons, et cetera, et cetera. Now ask yourself, imagine yourself being the person in receipt of this question, OK? They are, you're asked, what did you spend on rice in the last week? You give some answer. And then immediately you're asked the question, what did you spend on rice in the last four weeks. Your natural tendency is to multiply the first number by four. Okay? Whereas in some sense, the normal recall loss gives you a 3.5 multiple. 
Okay? So in fact, if you take a figure for 1990, which was on a four-week recall period, but with a, se a seven-day recall period not in there, and then you take a figure for 1999 with a four-week recall period, but with the week one-week recall period was also in there, you're, simply, you're still comparing four-week, four-week. The four-week figure has been contaminated. Okay? And in fact, you will have an upward drift in consumption purely as a result of this recall period. And therefore, you'll have a downward drift in poverty, measured poverty, purely as a result of this, this exercise. Now, this is not an imaginary case. This is, in fact, what happened in India in the 1990s. And in uh, the 1999 NSS National Sample Survey data are contaminated by this. And in fact, the whole discussion in India of liberalization and so on and so forth was thrown off, thrown off track for three years while people resolved this thing. And in this university, Angus Deaton and his, and his students uh, uh, put forward a particular technique of rescuing <laughs> the true thing from there. And of course, that itself is subject to criticisms. But anyway, let's, let's take that. Uh, and then the debate can, can go on. So anyway, that's just one small example of how when one sees these numbers, saying, well, 61% here, 31% here, et cetera, et cetera, all sorts of things are going on underneath there, and we have to be really careful. And of course, when you elevate these things to the Millennium Development Goal number one, then these issues become very important. So that's just a, 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 one issue that I wanted to bring up vis-a-vis -vis the Millennium Development Goals. Let me now turn to the second set of issues, which is let's take the, let's take the objective at face value. Let us take even the measurement. Uh, suppose there are no measurement issues either. And we ask the question, what is it that leads to this poverty reduction? Especially, what are the interactions between growth and inequality, and what policies and institutions are good for growth? Uh, and in fact, whether a high degree of economic inequality, for example, uh, holds back growth in the future. Now, uh, Francois uh, and I have both contributed to this literature, but Francois has contributed far more to this literature than I have. And in fact, his paper is entirely devoted to the interaction between growth and inequality. So I'm just going to be very brief, and you know, Francois really uh, takes these takes issues up in much greater detail than, uh, than I do in my paper. But I just want to make two points. Firstly, there seems to be, in the economics literature, there seems to be, in some sense, a disconnect between a high level of the development of theory around these issues, the theory of how trade policy impacts on growth, how, how trade policy impacts on inequality, how trade policy impacts on poverty reduction, the theory of how, an of how initial inequality can hold back growth in subsequent years through various mechanisms. There's tremendous development of that theory. But I'm afraid the empirical evidence on any of these propositions is relatively weak. And I think that's what lies at the heart of many of these debates, that try as we might, using our best statistical techniques and so on, we simply cannot seem to find tight connections between policies and institutions on the one hand and outcomes, growth, uh, poverty reduction, etc., on the other. This is true, I would say, of the trade policy literature, although Francois and I might be on, on a different point in the spectrum on that. But I think in terms of the effect of inequality on growth, uh, I think we would both agree that although the theory is very strong, <laughs> and in some sense strongly suggests that high levels of inequality hold back growth in subsequent periods. I'm afraid the macro level empirical evidence coming off the, if you try to look for an association between initial levels of inequality and subsequent growth rates in, in a cross-section of countries, uh, as Francois notes in his paper and as I note in mine, in fact, you have contradictory results uh, coming out. 
So I think this is, this, is, this is the way it is. I would say the professional consensus is not strong on the empirical aspects of this connection between policies and institutions and outcomes. And that, I think, is what leads to, is, is, is at the basis of many of the debates and discussions that take place. The second point that I want to make is that, uh, on this issue, as I said, Francois will talk much more about this, is that although normal science, normal economic science is working away at this question, of the association between policies and institutions and outcomes, etc. There's not that much in the economics literature on why it is that, quote unquote, good policies and institutions are adopted or developed. Why and how it is that good policies come to be adopted, and why and how it is that good institutions develop. Okay? So I think we're weak empirically on the relationship between policies and institutions and outcomes. Uh, we're even weaker, I would say. Uh, on, uh, on how it is that actual policies and actual institutions come to be or get, uh, or get developed. There is, of course, the contribution of rational political choice, rational uh, political economy uh, uh, literature, and I talk about that in the paper. Uh, but again, uh, I think the, the literature is, is fairly weak here. And that's quite important, I think, for the international community, because what you want to know from an international point of view is what can you do from the outside to influence things in the country so that they, so that they do, take, uh, do uh, adopt good policies and good institutions, whatever they are, assuming you've got that from the first part of the, first part of the literature. And I want to tell you uh, <clears throat> a little bit about the sorts of constraints and the sorts of pressures that outside agencies face in trying to get countries to do the right thing, whatever, whatever that is. And I want to give you a little bit from my, from my own experience. One thing that uh, uh, Miguel didn't mention in the biographical note is that before I joined Cornell, uh, for, for a decade, I was, I was actually on the staff of the World Bank. Uh, part of it was spent in the research department, which uh, Francois now heads, uh, but most of it was actually spent in the field, in operations, in actually managing the World Bank's programs uh, in, in, in Ghana, in West Africa. And the particular, the instrument of choice at the time was the instrument of conditionality. Okay? You do this, and we'll give you the money. If you don't do this, we won't give you the money. So it's both the carrot and the stick at the same time. And you think to yourself, and this is, this is uh, in the discourse, this is the notion of the big, bad Bretton Woods institutions forcing the poor, cash-strapped economy to do things that it doesn't want to do. This is the picture. Well, well I, was the, I was the front man for that, uh, uh, for that uh, view, that image. In 1992, when I, uh, when I was the World Bank's representative in Ghana, the, uh, <clears throat> the government broke all the, all the conditions in the structural adjustment loan uh, agreement. Uh, they didn't privatize. They uh, broke all the budget conditions. They gave an 80% across-the-board increase to the military and the civil service. There was an election coming up, uh, etc. They broke all the conditions. We suspended tranche release. The bank suspended tranche release. Uh, in other words, we withheld funds. And along with us, all the other co-financiers also withheld funds. In other words, this process was holding up one-eighth of the annual import bill of the country. Okay. So, you think yourself, so you think to yourself, a typical position, right? The, uh, a rich institution from the outside holding up a huge amount of cash for a poor cash-strapped economy. Surely that country must do whatever the hell this outside institution wants it to do. Okay? Wrong. <laughs> uh, actually, the pressure, the pressure was all on the World Bank to release that tranche without minimal attention to conditionality. And the pressure comes from a surprising uh, number of different sources. Uh, the, uh, there's a contractor in Ghana 
who owes money to a French bank. Okay? Uh, the contractor will not get his money until the government gets the money from the World Bank. And if the contractor doesn't get money, the French bank doesn't get its money. So you can imagine which way the phone calls are going from the Elysee to, uh, uh, to Washington. Mm -hmm. That's just a small example of how when you have a creditor-debtor relationship, okay, it's not clear who the short leash is on. It's not clear where the, which way the moral hazard goes in these, uh, in these sorts of situations. Uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, observed many years ago, if you owe your bank a thousand pounds, you visit your bank manager. If you owe your bank a hundred thousand pounds, your bank manager visits you. Okay. So, in other words, the, the, the effect of the outside institutions in these countries is much more subtle and much more nuanced than a simple conditionality type view uh, would say. And that's why we need to know how, in fact, these things, these things work in practice. And that's why, uh, my view at least, that the economics literature is not sufficiently well advanced and actually has not taken account of uh, the literature in political science and sociology, I think, is, a, uh, I think is, an important, is an important thing for us to bear in mind. So, Francois will talk much more about these things, I'm, I'm sure, in his, uh, in his uh, presentation. So let me then move to the third uh, set of issues that I wanted to raise, uh, raise which are really that uh, instead of taking the objective at face value, I want to raise some basic questions on, the, on those objectives itself. I'm going to raise two questions, but in fact in the paper I raise four, so you can go and there are two extra ones uh, in, the, in the paper. Let me, raise the, let me uh, approach the first question uh, in the following way. We have a particular number for the incidence of poverty, for the percentage of people below the poverty line, and we want to reduce it. Well, we can talk about whether trade is good and this and that and so on and so forth. Actually, the easiest way of achieving that is that you kill a poor person. Arithmetically, the easiest way of reducing poverty is that you get rid of somebody below the poverty line. That will arithmetically surely reduce the poverty index. This is not a mere philosophical curiosum, because of course excess mortality uh, of the poor is a long established uh, fact. So if in fact we were to achieve the Millennium Development Goals in 2015, if we were to actually achieve a halving of the incidence of poverty between 1990 and 2015, and I think that is indeed something to be celebrated. It isn't, if that happens, it is something to be celebrated. But what I would also want is that alongside with that would be the number of missing poor people who by their debts have made this achievement possible. Many years ago, Amartya Sen produced a, a paper called Missing Women in India. He said, if the mortality rates of women were the same lower level as that of men, 100 million more women would now be in the population than they were at the base state. Okay? So I would want, in the same way, in 2015, when we assess the achievement of the Millennium Development Goals, to have the number of missing poor people also as part of the ledger. And of course, this is a, this is a, a, this is a, a deep philosophical problem for those of you uh, familiar with population policy and so on, and going back to Derek Parfit's repugnant conclusion uh, and critique of total utilitarianism, etc. Uh, but also, I think it's a very practical issue because we have, we have now nailed our colors to this incident, halving the incidence of poverty mast. And we better be careful what we're buying into when we, when we, say, when we uh, uh, elevate that goal in this, uh, in this way. 
Now, you know, it's, uh, it, it's easy to ask the question. It's not that easy to give the answer uh, to, this, to this question, for example. Of course, you know, uh, you'll probably agree with me that uh, if a poor person died uh, last year as a result of poverty, then that person's debt should not privilege this indicator. But how far back do you want to go? Should the death of a poor person in the Great Fire of London also be counted now? Well, it seems to be patently absurd to do that. And it's patently absurd not to do, not to count the death last year of a poor person. But where in between those two uh, does the line, dividing line lie? I don't have an answer to that question. Okay? I mean, in the work that I've done, we use a pragmatic thing, which is to say, well, take the highest life expectancy in the richest country, 80 years, and let's count from 80 years on, so to speak. But it's, that's a very deep issue, uh, which I want to raise, which I've discussed in other papers, which are quoted in the, in the paper, but which I, which I don't really have a clean answer to. Let me now move to uh, the second question that I want to raise in this third set of issues which really uh, ask, ask fundamental questions about the Millennium Development Goal, the number one Millennium Development Goal itself. The, the number one Millennium Development Goal, just to repeat, is to reduce the global incidence of poverty by a half. The global incidence of poverty by a half. If you really took that seriously, if you really said let it be the global incidence of poverty, well, basically, it's what happens in India and China that matters, because the population weight is so large hmm, that really everything else is swamped by that. Okay? And indeed, many of the good figures that you're seeing at the global level are actually as a result of relatively good performance on these figures in <coughs> India and China. Okay? So if you genuinely, genuinely said, what I'm, all I'm interested in is the global incidence of poverty, then forget about everything else but India and China. But of course, that's absurd. We, intuitively, that's absurd. Okay? We don't, we, uh, we're not willing to let an increase in poverty in Africa be washed out by a decrease in poverty in India. Okay? Now, you know, uh, economists uh, by instinct are quite benthamite in their, uh, uh, in, in, their wel in their welfare economics and their welfare analysis. So quite often we do indeed sum up, appropriately weighted, sum up pain and pleasure in this, in this way. But to me at any rate, it is patently absurd to allow a an increase in poverty in Africa to be washed out in, by a decrease in poverty in, uh, in India. Now, actually, the way that institutions work, we, are, we recognize this. In the World Bank, for example, we put a cap on resource allocations to India and China. If you applied the appropriate formula, if you applied the formula that's used, actually 90% of either resources of the World Bank soft loan resources would go to India and China. But actually, we, we cap it at, I don't know what the current figure is, say 55% in the, in the old days, or 45% in the old days. Okay. So we're already taking on board this issue in our practical, pragmatic uh, work. Okay. Um, but, but I think this notion of, a, of having the global incidence of poverty uh, uh, leads to absurdities if we take it at the, at the aggregate level. Well, let's bring it down to the region then. It seems to me to be plainly absurd to let an increase in poverty in Ghana be washed out by a decrease in poverty in South Africa. Okay? And this goes back to the discussion that we had in the first session in terms of the normative salience of the nation state in these, uh, in, in these contexts. Okay? Well, if you buy that, if you take it down to that level, then the Millennium Development Goal becomes, in fact, a halving of the incidence of poverty in every country, under, uh, in every nation state. Aggregation across these nation states, I think, requires another normative step, and you better be clear about what, what that is in this case. 
But let me take it even one step further. Let me take it to subnational level. And let me give you two examples. Between 1989 and 1994, uh, in Mexico, the national incidence of poverty fell. The country was coming out of the debt crisis, things were improving, etc. But this decrease in income poverty, this decrease in the incidence of poverty, was composed of a decrease in Mexico City and in the regions closer to the US border, and an increase in rural areas and in regions in the south of Mexico, south, and West Me uh, south of Mexico. Let me give you another example. In Ghana, in the 1990s, a country that I know reasonably well, in Ghana 1990s, the household survey data that I, that I talked about earlier, if you, buy, if you take them at face value, show a decrease in the incidence of poverty throughout the 1990s. Roughly speaking, one percentage point decline for every year. This has gone from about 43% to 33% or something like that. Okay? But this decline <coughs> has been concentrated concentrated in the southern, the, the coastal and fo forest and coastal belt of the country. Okay? And in the north of the country, there's been no movement in poverty. In fact, extreme poverty has increased in the north of the country. The national figure has come down because it's a weighted sum of these two, uh, of these two, uh, of these two uh, things. Well, you know, all I have to do is to tell you that, that Chiapas is part of the southern region, the southern part of Mexico, and I have to tell you that in the north of the, the northern part of Ghana is primarily Islamic, and the southern part of Ghana is primarily Christian and animist. For all our antennas to go up in this uh, in this room, trouble is being stored for the future in this uh, in this country. And I have to tell you that in the neighboring country of Cote d'Ivoire. The, the borderline, which, which, which French troops are currently manning, is between the Islamic North and the Christian and animist South. And of course, the way that these belts go, there's a northern Islamic part of Ghana, which links into the northern Islamic part of Côte d'Ivoire, and so on and so forth. Okay? So I think uh, a particular problem that I find with, this, with, the, with the aggregation procedures that are implicit in this first millennium development goal is that it leads us into too high a level of aggregation. It leads us into too high a level of aggregation, whereas what I would like us to do is to stay at a more disaggregated level in this, uh, of, of, uh, of analysis. And I think this links back to some of the, some, uh, we'll hear from Amy Chua tomorrow about uh, dominant economic minorities, uh, etc. And it also links back to the discussion on inequality and growth. Because what I said is that the economic literature, the economic evidence between interpersonal measures of inequality and growth is not that strong, the Gini coefficient, et cetera, et cetera, okay? But we haven't really analyzed in detail the effect of intergroup inequality. When intergroup inequalities go out of kilter, what the effect of that is on social stability, on investment, and on growth. So my, my basic point here is that the aggregation implicit, if we buy into the Millennium Development Goal, I mean, first of all, it's absurd. I don't see how we can possibly buy into the just the global incidence thing. We, I, we run into the Africa, India, India, China problem. But it's more than that. I think it's 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 a tendency for us to work at an aggregated level. It's it's pulling us in that direction, and that's what I want to resist, and that's what I try to resist in this uh, in the questions that I ask uh, in this paper. So let me uh, conclude by saying that I, as an operational person, I welcome the MDGs. I welcome the consensus that they form. Uh, I welcome uh, that you know we now we, now, we can now discuss these issues in a in a, in a slightly more uh, uh, targeted way. We can have discussions of targeting the resources to achieve those goals, etc. But I think as an analyst, my job is to raise questions about these, 
especially when, as an analyst, I realize that these analytical questions have very deep operational implications as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is uh, Francois Bourguignon, who is the Chief Economist and Senior Vice President of Development Economics at the World Bank, uh, but he also retains a professorship in economics in Paris. Bourguignon's published work is extensive and includes most, uh, most recently the Handbook of Income Distribution. Professor Bourguignon. Thank you very much. <clears throat> it is a, a honor to be uh, here today and to uh, be allowed to share some ideas about uh, this uh, topic on uh, growth and uh, inequality. So I thank very much the organizers uh, for this. Before I start, I must also indicate that I have nothing to do with the French banker that uh, Ravi uh, alluded to. And I was not, uh, I had any connection with the Elysee Palace in those days. Uh, I would also like to apologize uh, to the uh, discussant because I really sent this paper uh, very late. Uh, I accepted to uh, come here today uh, six months ago when I was uh, not uh, yet uh, with uh, this position I have today. And uh, since uh, a couple of months, uh, I have the feeling that I'm racing against time and I'm not the winner. And uh, because of that, uh, the paper was sent really extremely late. Okay. Uh, I must also maybe say that uh, I will not talk here so much as a chief economist of the World Bank. Maybe Ravi in his presentation said more about the World Bank than I will say. Uh, it is not because uh, uh, there is any contradiction between, between what I can think as an academic and what I can think as a chief economist, quite uh, the contrary. Uh, but it seems to me that the topic that uh, we have to deal with today uh, calls for a, a, a quick uh, survey, a quick review of uh, what does exist in the literature, and uh, this is what uh, I intend to do, uh, and I will not necessarily get into the operational part of uh, all what this uh, topic, growth and inequality, uh, uh, involves. I will simply allude that uh, at the end of, uh, of, the, of the presentation. So let me first start by uh, trying to uh, reconcile the uh, growth and inequality uh, title with a very ambitious title of the whole conference, State of the World. Uh, when I put together State of the World on the one hand and growth and inequality on the other, I told myself that maybe uh, uh, growth and inequality was not enough general. And I think it is important to keep in mind that when we study growth and inequality, we really uh, have in mind something more important, which is really the relationship between uh, the long-run economic evolution of uh, society and really uh, the way in which uh, that evolution is generating heterogeneity across individuals. And heterogeneity may be in the economic sphere, it may be in the social sphere, it may be in the political sphere, it may be everywhere. But this is really what uh, we have in mind. And of course also in mind the opposite relationship, the way in which existing heterogeneity in a population of all kinds may affect the way in which the society will uh, uh, evolve over time uh, on the, its uh, economic side. So 
normally we would like to deal uh, with uh, uh, this issue in general terms. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it is a difficult uh, thing to do. We only uh, approached this uh, in a very partial way, and I will stick today to uh, the very uh, 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 restrictive, maybe, uh, topic, which is uh, growth and inequality, and a very economic uh, or economicist view of uh, uh, all these uh, issues. Uh, but this does not mean that uh, I feel that uh, this is uh, sufficient an analysis uh, to answer many of the questions we are interested in. Uh, I think that uh, uh, talking, as uh, Ravi did, about uh, poverty, uh, is, uh, is, is a nice way to introduce uh, the uh, importance of the growth inequality uh, uh, duality. Um, if we have in mind a poverty objective for society, for example, because we have a Rawlsian view uh, at uh, social justice, and uh, or we are interested by uh, development issues and we want to reduce absolute poverty, that is, the number of people below uh, a poverty line in a given country, then I think it is important to understand that what is behind such a goal is really uh, the relationship between growth and inequality. The way in which you can reduce the proportion of people below the poverty line, the one dollar a day or two dollars a day used by the World Bank and other inter international organizations, for example, the way in which you can do that is by moving everybody income or uh, consumption uh, uh, power by the same proportion, and this is what we would call growth with neutral distributional effect, or you can also redistribute uh, income at some point of time from the rich to the poor, and because of that, you'll have some people uh, going beyond the uh, poverty line. Now, uh, we can analyze the evolution of poverty in, uh, in countries in, in those terms. We can decompose the change in poverty in what is due to the growth uh, of that economy and what is due to the fact that the distribution has been changing uh, over time. Uh, and we could say that uh, 3% uh, per capita uh, growth uh, uh, will generate uh, so many percent uh, less of poverty, and we can also say that uh, so many uh, points uh, less in the Gini coefficient, uh, which measures inequality, will generate uh, so uh, much less of poverty. But when we do this kind of experiment, uh, we generally forget that we cannot consider that the two sides, growth and inequality, are independent. If we want to generate 3% of per capita growth in an economy, maybe this is not possible without a change in the distribution. Maybe this will have an impact on the distribution. And if we want to accelerate growth, if we want to move from 3 to 5%, maybe the impact of this acceleration uh, on uh, the distribution will be uh, substantial, will be sizable and will be reducing the impact that one is uh, uh, hoping to have on poverty. In the same way, if we say, okay, let's redistribute income in order to have less poverty today or in the coming 10 years with this redistribution program, then we must keep in mind that by doing that, we might very well be reducing the rate of growth of the economy. And uh, these are the uh, uh, issues that we want to, be, uh, we want to look at. What is the kind of uh, uh, relation that we have between those two uh, 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 concepts, growth and inequality? Is it the case 
that it is possible to reduce inequality and at the same time to promote growth. And this is a point that, on which I will insist uh, very much. Or is it okay that in some areas uh, there is a trade-off between both of them, and if you want to reduce poverty, then probably there is a kind of optimal combination of uh, uh, inequality reduction or inequality policy and growth policy. So these are the issues that uh, I want to, 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 to look at. And basically I would want to know whether we can say that in general there is a systematic relationship between the rate and the patterns of growth of an economy and uh, the way in which uh, inequality is changing or the degree of inequality in uh, that economy. And uh, that relationship may be uh, uh, more growth or more rapid growth, more inequality or less inequality, or inequality going uh, gr uh, increasing first and then decreasing, or it may be a total independence, which is the title of, uh, of, of the paper that I, I, I submitted. So in doing that, I will uh, adopt uh, a local view to come back to the, uh, this morning's session rather than a global view. We could look at all these issues in terms of the world or the global economy. What is the kind of uh, relationship that we have at the world level between the growth of the global economy and the distribution uh, and uh, the evolution of uh, poverty? But here I will adopt really a local view, and I will assume that it makes sense to look at these issues from a national point of view. I will first look at uh, this uh, relationship between growth and inequality in the direction of what is the impact of growth on inequality. Then I will uh, uh, look at the opposite uh, relationship. And then I will conclude uh, with a few observations on uh, what uh, all this suggests in terms of, uh, of uh, policy. Okay, first, what is the impact of growth on, uh, uh, on inequality? In theory, we may guess that uh, growth will have an enormous impact on the heterogeneity of a population, on social structures uh, in a population. Uh, if we uh, uh, think in terms of sectors, we know that uh, growth is not taking place uh, in uh, the same uh, rate in all sectors of the economy, but growth tends to <coughs> concentrate in some sectors, uh, manufacturing versus agriculture, uh, high-tech sector versus low-tech sector, etc. And because of that, we know that there will be some asymmetry in the growth process. People in the growing sector will be advantaged. People in the lagging sectors uh, will uh, have uh, some disadvantage. Uh, we also know that the growth process is uh, going on with changes in the price structure. Some goods are becoming uh, more expensive, some uh, in relative terms. Some of the goods are, come, are becoming less expensive. Of course, those who are consuming the first goods are penalized, and those who are consuming the uh, second uh, uh, group or set of goods uh, are uh, uh, benefit from uh, growth. We also know that uh, growth will be modifying the uh, remuneration of the factors of production. Uh, because of the growth process, there will be a pressure, for example, on skilled work, which means that the wage differential between skilled workers and unskilled workers will change. Or growth will be demanding more labor, and then there will be an increasing incorporation of women to the labor force. And because of that, the gender differential in the labor market will be modified. Or uh, uh, the, land, the return to land will be modified. We know that all those factors will have a different return because of growth, and we know that people will be affected in a heterogeneous way simply because they don't own the factors in the same combination. And finally, we know that by definition, the growth process is accumulation 
of factors, accumulation of uh, capital, accumulation of human capital, education, training, uh, accumulation of uh, knowledge in some part of the population. And because of that, the endowments of the individuals in the economy are changing with the growth process, maybe from a generation uh, to the next. And we know that this is what is determining the evolution, the heterogeneous evolution of uh, the uh, population. So for all these reasons, we believe that growth may have a huge impact on the uh, distribution of economic resources. And as a matter of fact, in theory at least, we are able to identify those channels. We know that uh, urbanization, for example, will have this kind of impact on uh, inequality in the whole population, depending on the initial share of the urban and the rural sector, and depending on the initial differential in terms of income between those two sectors. This is one uh, set of uh, implications on which theory is uh, rather uh, well developed uh, in uh, economics. Another set of uh, channels is through uh, institutions. Uh, and again, growth may uh, generate changes, important changes in uh, institutions for essentially, I think, two types of reasons. One, there is an income effect. And become, because people are getting richer, they are asking, they are demanding different types of goods. For example, some people are analyzing the demand for social insurance as an income effect or more risk aversion by people who are uh, uh, getting away from the survival uh, uh, threshold. Uh, if this is okay, this means that because there is uh, more demand for being covering against all kinds of risk, a growing economy, or an economy becoming middle income and then a rich economy will uh, generate more social insurance. And as we know that social insurance is essentially a redistribution which is taking place at one point of time, this explains why directly we, are, we will be in a situation where we will be creating institutions that will redistribute and that will have an impact on uh, inequality. But there are many other things. Uh, we know that uh, because people are getting richer, because the survival is uh, less difficult, they will tend to have less children and better quality children. This is the old Baker uh, analysis, which means that fertility will uh, go down. Uh, and we may imagine many uh, uh, areas where uh, this will take place. Maybe people will have more time to be politically active, which means that uh, democratization will proceed more, uh, 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 more, more quickly uh, in uh, growing in economy when some uh, income threshold will uh, have been passed. We know, I mean, we, there is in the literature uh, analysis of these issues uh, without a very uh, strong uh, result, uh, I should say, but we guess here that there is a channel through which uh, growth definitely may impact uh, the distribution or the heterogeneity of the people through institutions. So from a theoretical point of view, we imagine what may be those effects. And because they are very different, because they are very numerous, we cannot say a priori that a growing economy, or depending on the rate of growth of the economy, what will be the impact of the growth on inequality? Simply because there are too many things. Uh, maybe the fertility effect I just mentioned will be compensated uh, by uh, uh, the skilled and unskilled uh, wage differential. It is totally possible. Maybe it will be compensated, as it was the case in, uh, in Brazil in a recent study uh, I saw, uh, uh, this fertility effect, which was equalizing in Brazil, was compensated by a lack of growth, which was uh, uh, reducing the employment uh, possibilities of uh, poor people. 
So because of this multiplicity of forces, we are not able to say a priori what will be the impact. So this means that the issue is essentially an empirical issue. Now, what do we know on the empirical side? Now, for a long time, uh, economists uh, have been very attracted by this issue. Uh, they wanted to know whether uh, we could find, uh, with data, aggregate data, and uh, cross-country analysis, whether it would be possible to find a relationship between uh, inequality and the level of uh, development. And the most well-known uh, hypothesis at this respect is due to Kuznet. It goes back almost 50 years ago. And Kuznet's hypothesis was to say that in the first stage, uh, inequality would increase with the development process. In the second stage, inequality would go down. So many people tried to uh, fit this uh, parabolic uh, curve to, to the data. Uh, initially, uh, it was very successful. Back in the 70s, there were a couple of papers who identified this parabola. And then for a while, there was this idea that, yes, I mean, we had found a kind of iron law of economics. Definitely, uh, inequality was uh, growing until some stage, and many people spent a lot of time trying to measure exactly what was the level of uh, income per capita at which there would be the turning point, and then inequality would uh, go down afterwards. Unfortunately, a couple of years later, with better data, we found that there was absolutely nothing in the data. This uh, was uh, something which was there in the, that data available in the 70s, which were, by the way, not very good. And uh, when we had a better set of data, when we were able to take into account fixed effects uh, uh, associated with each country, this uh, simply uh, vanished. Uh, Ravi contributed very much to uh, destroying this uh, iron law uh, that was uh, and in which uh, people believed that, uh, at, at, at some stage. Now, this does not mean that there is nothing. This does not mean that uh, there is no relationship between growth and uh, inequality. Uh, very recently, in a paper in the World Bank by David Dollar and Art Cray, uh, they have a paper called uh, uh, Growth is Good for the Poor because they find that uh, when they try to explain the uh, uh, share of total income going to the 20% poorest in terms of a few variables which may be responsible for growth, they don't find any relationship. So they say, fine, you can see that when the mean income is growing, the income of the poor is growing at the same rate. So uh, everything is fine. There is no impact of any variable on inequality, and therefore the only thing we have to do to reduce poverty is to grow. But all the case studies which have been made uh, show that indeed this is not true. Indeed, when we get into the detail, and this was the Brazilian story I was uh, telling before, uh, in the case of Brazil, you look at Brazil over the last 20 years, the inequality has not changed, absolutely flat. Uh, when you get into the details, but look, uh, fertility in Brazil has changed dramatically over the last 20 years, and poor people now have much less children than it was the case before. And when you try to analyze what is the impact of this on inequality, on poverty, you find that it has a very substantial effect. Now, if total inequality didn't change, this means that another force was present which went into the opposite direction. And when you look for this, then you find that what happened that the poor people Maybe they had less children, and they were better off because of that, but at the same time, they had less employment opportunities, and their labor force participation went down because of that, and this had a, a negative impact on their welfare. 
So what, what, what was the reason why poor people didn't get uh, employment opportunities? Simply because the rate of growth of Brazil has been uh, extremely poor uh, over the last uh, 20 years. And when you look at this household survey, uh, if I remember well, uh, in 20 years, uh, the uh, increase in the income per capita as uh, reported in those surveys uh, was uh, something, was a few percentage points uh, in, uh, in, in 20 years. So all the key studies uh, uh, I have seen uh, show that indeed growth is a very important part of the story to uh, uh, know, to analyze what has been going on in a specific economy, but the way in which growth is affecting uh, uh, inequality depends on many other things. It will depend on the kind of uh, policy which was behind growth. It will depend on uh, uh, the way in which uh, education has been growing in that economy. Uh, uh, and if we don't take into account all these factors, then we will not be able to analyze exactly the way in which uh, growth is affecting the distribution. So uh, my conclusion uh, from uh, this uh, point of view is uh, really to say that we don't have any systematic effect. This is true, uh, because probably it is uh, 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 too, uh, uh, too an idealistic view that uh, there might be any systematic effect. But when we concentrate on specific channels through which uh, growth may affect uh, inequality, then we find that without any doubt uh, there is uh, uh, an effect. Uh, before I switch to the uh, second uh, part on the impact of inequality, uh, of, uh, inequality on uh, growth, uh, maybe one remark which I didn't include in, uh, in, in the paper, but which I think is an important uh, thing to keep in, in mind when we try to analyze uh, the relationship between inequality and growth. One important uh, empirical fact is that inequality within countries does not change uh, very quickly or very much, except in uh, exceptional circumstances. It is true that uh, in Argentina, uh, over the last 10 years, inequality has increased uh, enormously, still more uh, since uh, uh, the uh, crisis. Uh, we know uh, experiences of this type. We know that in the United States, uh, inequality uh, in the mid, uh, starting the mid-70s uh, started to increase, and uh, now it's much higher today than it was uh, 25 years ago. Uh, but we also know many countries where inequality is very flat. Uh, for example, Europe, uh, or continental Europe, I should say, is a, is, a, is a region of the world where inequality is very flat. And this is quite interesting because this uh, may uh, mean that Behind uh, the scene, behind uh, this analysis of the relationship between growth and inequality, there may be some kind of auto-regulation, self-regulation mechanism which are responsible for the fact that inequality within a country is never changing too much, despite the shocks uh, or despite all the structural changes which I described before due to uh, the growth of that economy, due to the long-run evolution of that uh, economy. I think this is a very interesting uh, hypothesis. Uh, in the case of Europe, I think that we can justify that by looking at the redistribution system. And in order to, to do that, we have to get into political economy issues. But uh, this is an hypothesis which I think uh, we uh, must uh, uh, keep in mind. More quickly, maybe now on uh, the relationship or the impact of inequality on growth. Uh, again, to start with the theory and then to move to uh, uh, what is available on the empirical side, uh, 
Initially, in theory, the main uh, argument which uh, was available in that uh, area was uh, due to uh, Caldor, uh, and uh, it was a kind of argument against uh, redistribution or showing that redistribution would be detrimental to growth. And this idea was rich people are saving more than uh, poor people. So if you redistribute from rich to poor, the rate of saving in the economy will go down, which means that in the long run, that economy will not be able to grow as fast as without the redistribution. Uh, and for a while, uh, for many years, uh, the uh, profession lived with this kind of idea. And there, obviously, there was a direct trade-off between growth and uh, inequality. Now, over the last 15 years, uh, the profession tried to formalize intuition uh, that uh, were expressed by uh, several people. And I think that came uh, up with uh, interesting reasons why uh, we may believe that in some cases, redistribution from rich to poor may have a positive impact on the economy, on the rate of growth. And probably the best uh, example of that is the credit market uh, imperfection. Uh, the uh, principle is very simple to, uh, to understand. Uh, you are in an economy where there are people, poor people are credit constrained because they don't have collateral to uh, uh, show, uh, which means that when they are able to borrow, uh, they are borrowing at a very excessive rate, uh, let's say uh, 50% a year. Rich people don't have any uh, uh, constraint. When they borrow or when they save, uh, they get, uh, let's say, 10% on their savings or uh, on the loans uh, they uh, obtain. And then you can understand that the rich people will undertake projects, the rate of return of which will be until 10%, and poor people will undertake projects, the rate of return of which will be 50%. Now, it's not very difficult to see that if we are, we are able to have less projects at 10% being undertaken and more projects at 50% being undertaken, this is uh, a big plus uh, for the whole economy. And this is a way in which we can prove, in a very uh, simple way in which we can prove, that indeed there are some redistributions which are uh, efficiency-enhancing and, in dynamic terms, which are growth-enhancing. There are other arguments uh, of this type, uh, more on the political economy side, some on the uh, demand side. I don't want to insist too much on this, but uh, this simply showed that uh, there are reasons to believe that in economies which are in some sense imperfect, uh, the credit market imperfection, then <clears throat> it is possible to redistribute and to improve. A very good case, uh, a good application of the credit market imperfection would be to education. Uh, poor people cannot send uh, kids to uh, uh, secondary school or uh, beyond when uh, rich people can do it, and very talented uh, poor kids uh, will simply not go to school, when non-talented rich kids uh, will be going to school. This is exactly the same kind of, uh, of argument. Now, what kind of uh, empirical evidence do we have uh, on, on this? Again, initially, when uh, the first papers on, uh, with this kind of idea were, uh, were written, uh, authors uh, tried to check whether there was uh, an empirical uh, aggregate cross-country relationship between inequality and growth. So they tried to explain the rate of growth of the economy by a couple of variables plus uh, the uh, degree of initial inequality. And surprise, they came with a very strong positive, sorry, negative uh, relationship, saying more inequality, less growth. And then immediately in uh, the literature and in international uh, development community, uh, the word spread 
fine, we have to reduce inequality and growth will, uh, uh, will start. Uh, and the problem was that we uh, had exactly the same uh, difficulty as with the uh, uh, Kuznets curve I was referring to before, when we got more data, when uh, we did uh, more serious uh, empirical analysis, uh, then we found that uh, there was not very much uh, in the data. And when you think about this, it is not very surprising. I mean, if you really want to have to say something uh, of this type, you should imagine that at least there are a couple of examples in the world where inequality changed for some exogenous region, uh, reason, uh, and then we would like to know whether this uh, exogenous change in inequality produced an acceleration or deceleration in growth. But, I mean, how many countries are like that? In how many countries can we observe a change in the distribution that is truly exogenous? No, uh, uh, there is not. Uh, inequality is changing at the same time as other conditions in the economy which are determining at the same time the rate of growth of the economy. So the information set that we can use to uh, try to check this theory is simply too limited, uh, not to say inexistent, to uh, uh, undertake this kind of uh, uh, empirical verification. Does this mean that uh, there is absolutely uh, nothing to say? Uh, I don't think that we should be too uh, negative on this. It is true that in aggregate terms uh, we cannot say very much, but uh, uh, if we have in mind the kind of uh, uh, microeconomic argument, the credit market imperfection argument, for example, uh, in mind, it is sufficient to show that indeed there is credit market imperfection. It is sufficient to show that indeed uh, the rate of return on investment projects uh, the education of poor people is much higher than the rate of return in investment projects undertaken in the rest of the economy, in the formal sector of the economy, to be sure that any kind of redistribution that will ease the investment among uh, the poor will produce, uh, will have a positive impact on, uh, uh, on growth. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, this uh, approach that we had uh, or this kind of evidence that we uh, would like to have on uh, cross-country uh, comparisons and uh, it is true that a change or uh, more inequality uh, is uh, reducing the rate of growth. I don't think that it is a, a very uh, uh, interesting uh, 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 direction for uh, research. Uh, we should more, uh, we should concentrate more systematically on the basic channels through which we believe this kind of relationship may uh, exist and uh, uh, check whether uh, it is uh, those uh, channels uh, indeed uh, correspond to uh, uh, what uh, we, uh, the argument I just uh, uh, mentioned. But I think this is where we, we stand on uh, uh, both uh, uh, sides. So let me uh, now conclude with a, a couple of uh, uh, general uh, points uh, and including uh, what all this implies in terms of, uh, uh, of, of policy. First, to come back to the initial question that I had at the beginning, are growth and uh, inequality independent? Uh, I think that uh, the uh, answer is most likely not. Uh, there are uh, many reasons, uh, and I indicated many of them in this presentation, for which there is a relationship between those uh, two uh, concepts. Is there any systematic relationship between them? Maybe, uh, but it is extremely difficult to identify that. And if you want to define it, we must get into very much detail because what we know is that there are so many 
uh, factors which will affect that relationship that we must control for all these factors and most probably it will be uh, impossible to check empirically whether all these conditions are satisfied or not. So uh, I'm not saying that there is no systematic relationship, I'm simply saying that most probably uh, it will be uh, difficult to identify and we must be maybe more inductive uh, from that point of view than uh, deductive. So my uh, uh, view is simply that we should uh, try to uh, work more systematically on the channels, particular channels through which there is a connection between growth and inequality. We should work more on the patterns of growth and the way in which they affect the distribution. Ravi was referring to trade reform, for example. When uh, uh, the World Bank is recommending uh, uh, trade liberalization to a country in order to uh, enhance growth, Maybe this is fine, but we'd like to know what is the impact or what is the likely impact of this trade uh, liberalization on the distribution. Who will be affected? Uh, who will be gaining? Who will be losing? Uh, and are we sure if uh, the losers are among the poor, uh, uh, are we sure that we have some uh, mechanism by which we can compensate the losers uh, in order to at least intertemporally to uh, make sure that everybody is uh, better off. So from that point of view, we know uh, uh, how to uh, handle those things. We know how to handle those specific channels, but we don't do it uh, uh, systematically enough. And uh, uh, what uh, I'm trying to push forward uh, these days in uh, the World Bank is certainly uh, uh, this kind of evaluation of uh, policies to make sure that when we recommend a policy, we know what the distributional impact of that policy is and we are not satisfied by uh, the GDP will grow by so much if we go in that, uh, in, in, in the, in that direction. So things are possible. And if we want to show that some kind of a distribution will be efficiency enhancing or will be growth enhancing, then again, let's get to, get, let's get to uh, obtain the microeconomic uh, data, microeconomic evidence that will permit to uh, conclude in the way I did before with uh, uh, market, with um, credit market imperfection. Let's get into uh, microcredit uh, uh, policies. Uh, let's get into uh, uh, trying to subsidize uh, education uh, more uh, systematically. Uh, but uh, we have to uh, make sure that uh, uh, the uh, basic evidence is uh, available. And I think that uh, this is something that we are uh, doing right now. Now, this uh, lack of, uh, uh, this is my uh, fourth point, uh, this lack of uh, systematic uh, relationship at the aggregate level, to some extent is reassuring in the sense that this means that there, there is room for policy. One, maybe one of the reasons why it is so difficult when we are comparing countries uh, to find any systematic relationship between growth and inequality or inequality and growth, it is because behind the scene there are policy choices uh, uh, and uh, uh, those policy choices are very different across countries and they are responsible for heterogeneity uh, uh, across countries. So uh, if this is the case, then this means that we must understand better what is uh, uh, behind this and we must understand better how uh, policy is uh, working and uh, to recommend uh, uh, some uh, uh, innovation probably in, uh, uh, in, uh, in policy. And I want to uh, finish by indicating that indeed those uh, ideas uh, are uh, uh, producing uh, results uh, 
think that one of the most important uh, change I've seen uh, in uh, social policies uh, lately uh, in developing countries is certainly this move by uh, many uh, middle-income countries, and in particular in Latin America, uh, toward uh, uh, truly uh, true redistribution policies. Uh, you are probably aware uh, of this uh, program which uh, started uh, a few years ago in Mexico with the name of Progresa, uh, which is now uh, has the name of Oportunidades. Uh, this program is simply a cash transfer program which is conditional on two things. First, uh, there is a means test to get uh, the transfer. And second, uh, in order to get the transfer, families must send their kids uh, to school. And the transfer which is made to the families depends on the number of kids going to school with a different amount for boys and girls, for, with a different amount depending on the grade at which uh, those kids are, in order to represent, to take into account the opportunity cost for those kids to go, uh, to, go to school. Now, it was observed, the evaluation which has been made of uh, this program showed that, indeed, uh, the uh, schooling uh, enrollment uh, and schooling achievements, really, uh, of uh, those kids uh, made uh, very much, very significant progress because of the program. The same kind of program is now uh, being launched in uh, Brazil uh, under the name of Bolsa Familia and in some other countries. And this means that uh, the uh, uh, policymakers in those countries uh, were uh, enough convinced that there was uh, market imperfections uh, it is such that this kind of redistribution would be growth enhancing. When I'm referring to policymakers, this is not only the policymakers, this is the whole political circle. In those uh, laws, uh, those programs had to be approved by parliaments. And uh, the problem of uh, uh, the policymakers had been to convince uh, the members of the parliament that indeed this analysis was correct. And by having this kind of cash transfer program, uh, there would be uh, long run uh, gains in the whole economy. And at the same time, uh, there would be more equity in those economies. So I think that from that point of view, the literature I have uh, uh, very uh, quickly uh, surveyed or reviewed here was quite uh, uh, important. Uh, and, as a matter of fact, effective in producing uh, more uh, analysis, in already producing uh, some uh, policy innovations, and I simply hope that uh, there will be uh, more people uh, working in these areas uh, in order to uh, get uh, or to push uh, forward a little further uh, the process which uh, has already started. Thank you very much. You have been privileged to watch the eradication of all stereotypes of economists. We have seen economists argue against Benthamite aggregation and against simplistic causal models. Uh, all wonders uh, to us. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to take a short break. We're going to come back for the comments and then hopefully for discussion with the audience. Thank you very much. Five minutes, please. <laughs> It's an iron law of bricks, and we're going to push it back. That was wonderful. That was great. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I told you about my core credit. No.
As we did in the morning, what we're going to do is um, have the three commentators, and I'm just going to introduce them now, again, to avoid the traffic back and forth from the podium. And then we'll open it up to some questions from the floor, and at that point, we will ask the speakers to respond both to the comments and to the initial set of questions. Uh, so let me introduce the, the, the three commentators, all from uh, Princeton University. The first will be Alejandro Portes from the Department of Sociology, who, and again, I'm introducing them with an emphasis on the regional focus, uh, as that is their assigned role today. Uh, and Alejandro is justly famous for his work on Latin America. Um, Jeremy Edelman from the Department of History also uh, has worked a great deal on Latin America. And finally, Jose Sheckman from the Department of, of Economics, who, given that that discipline has done less regional-specific work, but is also well-known for his work, uh, particularly on um, Latin America. So in that order, they will come up and, and chat, and then we will get some comments, and the speakers will be able to respond. Thank you. Well, the two papers uh, uh, are very interesting and written, and I am clearly seeing, uh, reviewing them from the outside. Uh, they, have, uh, they are written by prominent economists, and although uh, some of my reactions are uh, critical, they are not critical against the papers. Actually, I think that there is a lot of, of coincidence in terms of of what they they call to, but vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the state of this literature. The papers basically review the state of economic literature and the relationship between growth, inequality, and poverty. In one case, that of Francois Bourguignon, the paper reviews criti critically the evolution of the economic literature on these topics. And the other, in the case of Ravi Kambor, it sharply summarizes the state of that literature and then uh, proceeds to pose a series of what he called hard questions, uh, some of which are of a technical nature, and some who are uh, those of a more ethical, philosophical kind, engaging the millennium development goals of the United Nations. For students of development, poverty, and inequality who are not economists, but who follow this literature with a great deal of interest, this, the state of the literature at present, as reviewed in the papers, uh, lend itself to three observations. The first is how inconclusive present results are and what weak guidance in general they offer uh, for concrete policy measures. It is not the case, uh, as in the, the paradigm of normal science, that good research uh, drives out the bad. Uh, it is instead uh, the case that the search, perhaps for recognition and fame, lead social scientists to progressively more complex analysis, challenging and qualifying prior conclusions by others. Thus, in a sense, good science actually produces more good science, but the results are often so over-elaborated, so sophisticated as to obscure the self-evident and produce uncertainty, both in theory and policy. From the materials at hand, uh, we may conclude, for instance, that growth may or may not reduce income and wealth inequalities, depending on the context, that poverty may or may not be reduced by growth, 
and the relationship between inequality and poverty depends on how the latter, that is poverty, is actually defined. And we can may conclude that early inequality may, but again it may not, have an effect on subsequent economic growth. The second observation tied to that is how much country specificity there is in the results that are reviewed. A point related to the preceding one, and which indicates that in, instead of solid universal laws on which we can confidently uh, base uh, policy, we generally have a series of contingent outcomes uh, dependent on national and even on local factors that are often not well understood. That specificity is apparent in Bourguignon's papers in figure five that shows that once national fixed effects are introduced in the equation, the alleged Kuznets-like relationship between economic development and inequality actually evaporates. It is also present in some of Camber's hard questions, which are the core of, the, of his papers, such as how do good policies and institutions come to be adopted, a, 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 a clear contingency. The third observation is that if there is so much uncertainty and so much country specificity, then the key determinants of economic growth and distributional outcomes may lie, lie on the policy context particular to national societies. Or, as Combor says, and I quote, faced with the conceptual and empirical difficulties of establishing relationships between growth equity and other economic variables, the economic literature has fallen back on, quote, institutions as the basis of success. So cross-sectional and longitudinal regressions with nations as units of analysis are out, guilty of inconclusiveness, and perhaps detailed case studies of national institutions are in, since this is where institutions actually are found. The problem that I see there is that the theoretical and methodological arsenal of economics as presently constituted is not well suited to the study of what it's, it now is labeled institutions. The difficulty actually begins with the very definition of the concept, which currently encompasses things as diverse as the independence of central banks, the human capital of governmental staff, and the civic-mindedness or the civic spirit of a country's population. This conceptual mix within the same terms threatens to lead the study of institutions to a level of inconclusiveness comparable to that achieved by cross-national studies. Here, I would suggest economics could get some help from nearby disciplines, beginning with some elementary conceptual distinctions among those things that are labeled today institutions as that between state apparatuses and their characteristics, the class structures of, in civil society, and the value normative complexes in a nation's culture. As a preliminary potential example of possible contributions, I would like to, in the rest of my time, flesh out the concept of human agency, well, that is, agency from below, which are often obscure, this apply, uh, obscure in general models, applying it to a problem that is relevant to the topic at hand, namely how the poor 
actually cope with their situation in the absence of formal opportunities for regular employment. For it is not the case that the poor in this country simply sit still waiting for the academic debate to settle and for the correct policies uh, issued to resolve their, um, their situation. Uh, instead, they take matters into their own hands, seeking ways of, re of redressing both absolute and, in many cases, relative deprivation. I have toyed in, uh, in the past with the concept of enforced entrepreneurialism to summarize these alternative avenues for redress from below. This concept is a direct descendant of Robert Merton's classic sociological analysis of what happens when a substantial gap emerges between culturally desirable ends and institutionalized means to attain them <coughs> in socialist uh, theory and social behavior. This is the elder Merton. Um, uh, in the interest of time, I will just mention, mention some of those avenues, just some, and perhaps uh, with some of the accompanying paradoxes. First, one such avenue of informal, uh, of enforced enterprise is informal employment. Informal enterprise, sometimes called self-invented employment, if most, the most familiar example, well exemplified by the mass of street vendors that crowd the city, the streets of third world cities. That is familiar, that's not new. But what is commonly known is that today, street vending is often not a poor alternative to regular wage employment, but a preferable option. That is, in a context of labor market flexibilization, the types of jobs offered by formal enterprise are often so precarious and poorly paid that we are finding in city after city that many potential, potential workers actually prefer the relative independence and the income opportunities derived from informal enterprise. A second alternative under enforced entrepreneurship uh, by the poor is crime. The significant rise in unemployment and inequality following the application of orthodox adjustment policies in such countries as Argentina, uh, that is, it was mentioned by Bourguignon and it's, it's documented in a number of, can be documented in a number of ways. This is a simple, uh, a simple chart. Um, was that, uh, that rise in, in uh, inequality, which was, uh, was enormous during the decade of the 90s, was accompanied by a significant rise in crime, especially in the capital cities. Um, uh, both in the in nation as a whole and in the, in the capital city as well. In terms of enforced entrepreneurialism, the most important crime is, are not homicides, because homicides can be for any reason, but rather uh, property crimes with or without violence that are designed to appropriate the wealth of others. There is evidence of a significant rise in such crimes in Argentina and other Latin American countries, and I believe that Francois Bourguignon have written about this in the past, as well as some data which is indicating that this crime wave, which, which is my point, is not anomic, but has a clear entrepreneurial logic. In other, in other words, we are not witnessing a situation of the poor just preying on the poor, but going to the areas and neighborhoods where the wealth is, that is the city centers, 
and the middle and upper class residential areas. It is increasingly clear that it is relative, not absolute deprivation, that plays a role uh, in what is happening in this uh, uh, institutionalization of property crime as the form of popular enterprise to cope with poverty. Absolute reductions in poverty do not affect it. In Chile, uh, to take one example, and in Santiago in and in particular, poverty levels have declined significantly uh, and enormously during the last decade without making a dent on a rising crime wave. It has been levels of inequality, stagnant or rising, that have preceded or accompanied it. The trend is well exemplified in this city, as well as the fact that the highest incidence of property crime in, a city, in metropolitan Santiago take place, this is the darker areas, which is a higher incidence, in the wealthy commune, in the wealthy comunas of Santiago de Chile, in Providencia, Las Condes, La Reina, less so than in the working class periphery in the south and east. So in a sense, um, in that country, the typical urban, prop, urban property crime today is committed by a young male marginalized from the labor market, but well integrated into the modern culture of consumption, going to wealthy areas to appropriate the means to acquire what he sees every day on television and in the streets, but which is denied to him through at least, at least through regular employment channels, and people go, as, as, as uh, Clyde would say in the famous film, where the money is. Uh, the third alternative of enforced entrepreneurialism that I would like to, and with that I conclude, is emigration. Leaving, the, leaving their country and entering the first world, the first world by whatever means uh, possible has become an increasingly common form of popular enterprise. Neglected by traditional analysis of development and poverty, cross-national migration represents today an increasingly important phenomenon in the global system. The key point that I like to emphasize in this alternative is that going abroad is, represents an economic solution not only for the migrant himself or herself, but for those left behind, often not only families, but often entire uh, villages. As a young Salvadorian sociologist recently told us, migration and remittances represent the true economic adjustment program of the poor in Latin America today. Um, Behind our backs, behind the back, the backs of development experts, as it were, the modest remittances and donations of migrant workers have accumulated to become an unexpected and a significant economic resource of communities, of regions, and even of entire countries that today tabulate them as a principal source of foreign exchange and collateralize their loans on the basis of the expected level of remittances years hence. This key outcome of grassroots transnationalism, or if you like, globalization from below, is still neglected in a standard treatment, treatments of underdevelopment and, po and, po and poverty. On the contrary, I would argue that the close to 175 million people who have availed themselves of this alternative uh, must be at the core of any uh, viable and contemporary analysis of these topics on their development and poverty. 
more generally, research on how the poor themselves cope with economic stagnation and inequality can serve as a useful complement of how to address these problems uh, by analysis from above. This knowledge may even provide some good ideas of how to implement redistributional programs and anti-crime programs and how to best uh, to put to use the results the wealth created by popular entrepreneurship now abroad and being rechanneled through remittances back to their home communities. The many surprises from the field that empirical research uh, on these matters uh, of enforced entrepreneurship from below generates may well be used to correct or at least to moderate deductive conclusions from theory. Well, if um, Alejandro Portes was an outsider, uh, I'm a real outsider um, because I work primarily on the 18th and 19th centuries, um, uh, which will become relevant, actually, uh, in, in my comments. Uh, but uh, as I read both of these papers, I was reminded of a, of a famous essay by Albert Hirschman written in the late 1960s on the shifting levels of tolerance for inequality uh, reflecting on a lot of the work um, um, that, in a sense, acts as the foil uh, for the research that's being talked about this afternoon, particularly that inspired by Kuznets. Uh, most of you, or those of you who are familiar with the essay, will, will know it mainly for the metaphor uh, that um, he very characteristically conjured up with the tunnel effect. Um, so for those of you who go to New York City tonight or tomorrow over the weekend, uh, by train or even more by car, uh, you'll recognize the phenomenon, which was uh, as you, uh, do you know about the tunnel effect? No? Okay. I take the train home. <laughs> okay, take the train. Well, if you drove, I know Anne Marie does sometimes, uh, and so the metaphor will work f for you. Uh, it's the feeling when you are in the tunnel, stuck on your way in, into the city from New Jersey, uh, and the traffic doesn't move. Nobody's moving, right? And that's fine so long as nobody's moving. And then the next lane over starts to move a little bit more quickly. And as the next lane over starts to move a little more quickly through the tunnel, cars start to dodge, they're not supposed to, and you get enraged, right? And so the tolerance for going slowly shifts according to the motion of other vehicles uh, in the lanes. Uh, and he uses this as an analogy to talk about the ways in which there are shifting levels of tolerance for the phenomenon of uh, inequality. Uh, in the world, um, and he's reflecting in particular on uh, the provinces called Latin America, sort of Miguel, but uh, I, I resist this one. Um, so as he, he was reflecting on much of the received wisdom, I can see in these papers uh, that they were still in a process of uh, reflection and uh, that perhaps we are in a moment of rising levels of intolerance uh, for uh, inequality around the world. Uh, but paradoxically, quite unlike Albert Hirschman's uh, paper, where he was quite critical of the inverse relationship between rising levels of 
uh, of uh, intolerance for inequality was, and this was his main concern, the rising levels of certainty about what explained it. I have a feeling after reading the papers that we're in the inverse condition right now, which is rising, potentially rising levels of intolerance, but rising levels of uncertainty at the same time, which gives rise to a lot of the very speculative nature of some of the comments. Um, now, it may well be that the terms of it or the phenomenon that we are discussing are, are too bulky or that the tool, as, as Alex um, noted, perhaps some of the tools that are used in the analysis uh, may get in the way. Um, but I think what uh, came out of the papers for me uh, was um, a sense that the uh, dimensions of the issue uh, are much more complex than uh, the work in the 1960s um, ever conceded, both the scale, the balancing of local level phenomena and global level phenomena, which I want to uh, bring back into the picture at the end and that there are very different stories and narratives about what is going on, and that we do not have strong ideas of what connects the narratives together. This affects the way we measure things, uh, which uh, was the focus in particular of Kanpur's paper, and uh, uh, of course of causality, which was the primary concern for Bourguignon's paper. Is there a causal relationship between growth and inequality? In the middle of it all, and it's a good thing that we're here in this building, even though I'm a historian trespassing, is of course the centrality of public policy. How much does it matter in what areas? And of course, uh, uh, one, it, it came out a little more strongly in your paper than in your comments uh, this afternoon, uh, but Bourguignon uh, talks at length in the paper uh, about uh, how the politics of public policy making can yield unintended effects, especially when they, we are dealing with matters of tackling distributional issues. Uh, and I think I, I won't go there. I was going to make some observations on, on the paper because I thought Akanbor was going to read his, but on page four of the paper, there's a reflection on um, the multiple policy variables that are at stake. Um, and, and I think one discussion we might want to have is what is policy? Uh, or is that, in fact, just too bulky a term and we have to disaggregate it? Uh, policies governing particular kinds of sectors over particular uh, longevities of uh, time. In that, of course, is uh, my own pet peeve. And here I was uh, not surprised to hear uh, Alex raise this, is the study of institutions. Okay, I have three uh, issues I would like to raise. Uh, not so much as a Latin Americanist, although since Latin America is, I suppose, has the distinguished reputation of having or being the region of the world that has the most unequal distribution of resources, I can't help but make this a concern of mine. But I will actually make a comment as a macro historian uh, and as a study of world processes over long periods of time. My first is, uh, I wonder whether there's an elephant in the room that we are not talking about. How influential are the initial distributional conditions to the experience and the outcome of modern economic growth? Uh, that much of the literature tended to treat, and I think uh, Bourguignon raises uh, this concern, and Kenpour is also dealing with this, 
uh, as well that uh, traditionally the distributional issues were seen as a derivative of a growth experience. Uh, that was uh, essentially the um, one of the, the inferences that, that flowed from the work that was inspired uh, by uh, Kuznets. But there is an increasing uh, uh, amount of research now actually trying a lot on uh, Latin America, which looks much more at the deep historical roots uh, and, and the distributional conditions for uh, everything that flows thereafter. Uh, in my own work, um, uh, uh, or I would uh, stress based, uh, not surprising on my own work, uh, the kinds of experiences that the 19th century, the first experience of market life, and particularly the allocation of the resource that was so critical to Latin America's re-engagement with uh, the world market in the wake of the collapse of mercantilist empires, which was the distribution of land, which set the stage for a series of class relations over the course of the 19th and 20th century that shaped the possibilities for doing uh, uh, some things and not others. So uh, there are these deep historical conditions. Uh, they are contingent. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are eternal. But it means we freight rather a lot on public policy. Um, uh, that, that is, that public policies are expected to redress uh, very deeply rooted sets of social and economic uh, conditions. By analogy, a letter written uh, from Thomas Jefferson uh, to Adams in 1826, looking at the, this is where my 19th century history comes in, uh, and he's looking at the revolutions for independence in Latin America and reflecting on his and Adams' own involvement in their own revolutions that dismantled uh, vestiges of old imperial systems. And uh, Jefferson wonders uh, why it is that the societies that most need revolutions are the ones that are least likely to be successful engaging in them. I wonder if the same kind of paradox uh, applies to the relationship between inequality and growth when we're dealing with uh, the ways in which policy might uh, tackle them. My second concern is what does this say about measurement? It is an important and legitimate issue, and I think Kanwur's paper is very important in this regard. Uh, as I read the paper and uh, watch him struggle to stabilize the units and, and uh, find a way to disentangle uh, variables, I wonder whether part of the problem is not related to the fact that uh, inequality is not, as we all know, the same as poverty. It is not just relative, but inequality is relational. It is about the social relationships between the haves and the have-nots and the people in between them. Uh, and how do you measure those relationships uh, is uh, a lot more difficult uh, as they develop over time uh, uh, than, um, than static uh, analyses uh, would suggest. Combine the elephant in the room, uh, the elephant, the, I don't know why, whoever thought this metaphor would work, I, 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 I don't know why. The elephant in the room is supposed to be the thing that is hard to describe, but we all know what it looks like when we see it. I don't have a problem describing an elephant, but that's why it's in the room, right? Um, because it is hard to describe, and that's where points A and point B come together and might suggest uh, uh, I, 
I, I, I, I would venture to say that inequality uh, does not just exist. It does not just persist, uh, but it is reproduced. And it is reproduced through institutions and mechanisms. And this is the point about the study of institutions. Third point, uh, and it sort of builds on the, these issues that I have been raising, is uh, the other question here. I come back to the global uh, issues uh, that I think are not here in the papers, as the concern is primarily cross-national. But what is the relationship between the structural heterogeneity of the world and the way the world works? Is there a relationship, as Bourguignon's paper uh, queries, uh, between inequality and growth? In a global age, and Miguel convened us here to talk about the state of the world, in the global age, does this mean that global inequalities are shaped by uneven patterns of world, of, of international growth? Or, as, and this is where I think sociological analysis would be very helpful, um, the relevance of world systems, not necessarily in the monolithic form that we once associated with world systems uh, theories, uh, but that we can think that there are logics that obtain at a level that shape what uh, nations and uh, regions and local systems um, uh, uh, fit into. So that this kind of world system reinforces global forms of heterogeneity. And this means aggregating and disaggregating constantly at the same time, why it's so unstable and hard to put the pieces uh, together. And we need to do these things uh, simultaneously uh, to explore what, if any, relationship then exists between growth as a worldwide process and local and international structures of inequality. Thanks very much. Well, um, somebody was going to help. Oh, you are going out. But you can hold for the first slide. Um, uh, everybody made their excuses why they were outsiders. In my case, um, I should say my day job is to be an economic theorist and work in financial, understanding financial markets. My night job, because I was born in Brazil and because I participate frequently on the debate about Brazilian economic policy, um, I think a lot about Latin America. And I also teach a course on Latin American studies here at Princeton and Latin American economics. But one of the things as a Brazilian, of course, I would have to be very, very preoccupied with is the question of growth and inequality. And I've thought a lot about this issue in the context of Brazil, but also on the theoretical constant, uh, in, the, in the theoretical realm. And my own view of this problem that I believe I share with Francois is this. There are probably some direct connections between growth and inequality, and Francois discussed here some of the possible mechanisms. But most associations arise from common causes, from particular policies that affect both growth and the level of inequality in society. Now, at that point of view, it becomes very important to look at the details of the, how these policies are implemented in different countries to truly understand the impact on growth and inequality. Now, one example which I think is very simple is education. Now, a policy of increasing the general level of education, uh, principally if it affects the possibility of families which have less resources 
to achieve, to educate their children may even raise an issue in equality. There may be some cohort effects, but certainly in the long run, decreases both inequality and promote growth. On the other hand, policies that subsidize a high level of education for an elite may also increase growth, but it's bound to increase inequality. And here I want to show you the first slide because countries differ a lot in the way they implement educational policies. If you look at growth numbers like percentage of GDP spent on education, Brazil looks a lot like Korea, especially since the 1980s. On the other hand, if you look at how much this country spent on the different levels of education, you get very different numbers. So it's not, the axis here are not that important, although they mean something too. What is in this graph is how different countries spend money on primary, secondary, and tertiary education. Now, if you look, for instance, Brazil, which is this blue line, starts at the bottom. It's the country that spends least per child, and this is corrected for purchasing power parity, least per child among these countries for primary education. By the time you get to tertiary education, Brazil is spending like OECD countries, like the average OECD country. Now, it's clear that behind these numbers is that very different groups of people are getting the benefits from this money, okay? So per child, Brazil spends in primary education like a very poor country and in tertiary education like a very rich country. Korea, which is the purple line, has a much flatter profile, which means that Korea, even though it spends much more per child at the primary level, it actually spends less per for young adult, in this case, at a tertiary level. So that's the kind of thing that you, that's why you can't just look at numbers. This is one of the reasons which I think is extremely hard to make this connection between inequality and, and growth, because both policies may be very good. You know, Brazil succeeded in growing per child. Yes, per child in school. So it's that per child in school. So you have to then account for the number of children and so on. But this per child in school, per student, in fact, that's the right term, which is up there. So um, that's why a country like Brazil has experimented in post-war high periods of high growth. And from what we've seen, of course, if you go back to the 1940s, it's very hard to measure inequality all through this period. Uh, Francois mentioned a very good database, but doesn't go that far for Brazil. Uh, but as for, from what we can see, nothing has happened to inequality in Brazil. And the next graph, which shows a, a shorter period, that's uh, graph number two, shows you what, what's happening in inequality in Brazil. It's a shorter period because that's all we can get to, which is from the mid-70s, which is basically nothing. Inequality has not moved in Brazil since the 1970s. And if you try to correlate those things with periods of growth, you're also going to get very little, very little um, uh, correlation. Now the next graph, Jeremy Alderman mentioned the fact that Latin America, I think it justified why Alejandro, Jeremy, and I are here, is that he said Latin America is a champion of inequality, and that's what this graph is supposed to, to show. It's one of our comparative advantages. Um, what it shows is it's just a simple regression of some measurement of, of inequality based on the percentage of the population, the poverty rate of less than $2 a day, but no matter which poverty rate you use, you get the same graph. On uh, GDP per capita, obviously the level of poverty falls, but all these red countries, these Latin American countries are countries which are above the trend. That is, they have levels of inequality which is larger than what would be justified by their income level. And there, you know, being a Brazilian, Brazil gets two numbers. The predicted number, what Brazil should have, it was a normal country, and the actual number, which is what Brazil has, and this is a log scale, so the difference is three times. So Brazil has three times the poverty rate as it should have. Now, Jeremy already mentioned 
the question, which I think is a very important question, how these inequalities, the origins of these inequalities, and the important historical roots. I like very much, there's a lot of good work, Jeremy did some work on this, I like very much the work by two economists, Stan Engerman and, and, and Sokolov, who tried to understand how the initial conditions in production uh, played a role in generating unequal societies in Latin America, how the economic, social, political institutions filtered the effects of these factor endowments and technologies on inequality, and how in Latin America these institutions help in the persistence of inequality. So we start with a very high level of inequality, but there is persistence. What I like to say is that you know, this high level of inequality we see in Latin America is not random. It's true we started with very, low, very bad levels, but it took a certain amount of effort to maintain it. It's not something you did it just by, by luck. It's not pure luck to get to that high level of inequality. And until now, we tend to discuss a lot specific programs um, 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 that help reduce inequality, may have induced growth, but it's very hard to get a global view of the role of the state in both preserving and sometimes even increasing inequality in Latin America. Very recently, a group of economists in Brazil um, did what I think is one of the first uh, uh, of what will be, I think, a series of, 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 of uh, studies that must be done on trying to understand the global impact of government policies on income distribution. And that's the last graph I want to show, um, and which, which is, I think, a very perceptive graph. So what they did is this. What is on the left is the, is the average transfers in red by deciles of income and the taxes for the same deciles in yellow for Brazil. And on the right, same thing for the UK. Now, you take the UK, you know, because um, you don't think of the UK as being a socialist country. Now, what you see, see is in both cases, in Brazil and the UK, taxes are progressive. The rich pay more. Those are absolute amounts. Those are percentages. Those are absolute amounts. Whereas in the UK, transfers from the governments basically decline as you go up on an income scale. In Brazil, actually goes up. So as I said, that's what I say. It takes an effort to do that. And when you look at those numbers, to try to understand, it doesn't become, it's not that hard to understand why countries like Brazil have preserved high levels of inequality. You know, this takes a certain amount of um, um, uh, effort, as I said. Now, let me touch on this. And I think this graph touches on something that Cambridge mentioned in his, you know, the, the need to kind of understanding data and to do work. And I want to make a, um, one small remark on, on Alejandro's presentation that shows that sometimes understanding data takes a lot, of, a lot of thought, but also a lot of good data, too. He mentioned the fact, which is a fact that I think many people in, in, in criminology and also economists have, have mentioned, that crime doesn't respond so much to level of wealth as it responds to inequality. At the same time, and this is, I think, a well-established empirical fact, at the same time he showed um, data for Chile for 2003 that shows that most property crime uh, seems to occur in the richest areas. Now, if you look at the city of Sao Paulo and you take the police reports, which is what this Chilean data is, is, is done from, and it's most crime data comes from police reports, you find exactly the same thing. There's very few reports of property crime in the poor areas of Sao Paulo. There's a much larger number in the richer areas. Now, recently, uh, a group of us uh, got involved in developing a victimization study for the city of Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo is a city which had never had a victimization study done. And 
you know, um, one thing we found out in this victimization studies is the rate of, 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 of theft in the poor area is actually larger than the rich areas. Why is that? Well, for an economist, that's a simple, that's a, there's a very simple point. There's an incentive to report. Uh, the rich report, first of all, because car theft is reported almost 100% because of insurance. But rich usually have insurance even for the house and for things that happen out of the home. So typically they go. There's also real, so that's a very simple economic reasoning that probably explains most of this, a lot of this variation. But there's another reason too, and this is also shown in this victimization study, is that the poor are afraid of the police. In the city of Sao Paulo, it's, it's more common for a, for a young male between the age of 15 and 30 of, uh, of color, I mean, the way we think of color in Brazil is different in the U.S., um, but in any case of color, it's easier for him to be stopped and abused by the police than to suffer an, uh, any kind of violence in the street, any other kind of violence in the street. So it shows two things. It shows, again, the, the, world, the state has a big role. It shows two things here. One is that we have to be very careful about interpreting data, but the second is that um, the role of the state in both maintaining inequality and ensuring that um, the poor in, in Latin America or in, in, in the world in general uh, have a particularly difficult time is still being underestimated. Thank you very much. Um, given that we're very far into the afternoon, we're actually seven minutes already behind time, what I'd like to do is just ask for three quick questions, and if I could really ask that a question mark be at least assumed uh, in the question, some form of interrogation, and we keep it short because then the speakers can respond to the comments in at least those three questions, if, if not more. Uh, we need to use the mics, by the way. I know it might seem silly because we have no problem communicating, but we are webcasting this, and the mics are the only ways that the webcast will actually get it. So, are they ready? Oh. What a well behaved dog. Um, in that case, I will allow the, the two speakers to respond to the comments. Okay, thank you very much. I'll, I'll start. Uh, no, thank you very much for uh, all these comments. Uh, I think that all, all the points uh, which were made are uh, well taken. Uh, I simply uh, want to uh, add a, a couple of, of comments on, the, on, on some of them. Uh, first, on uh, Alejandro's uh, comments, uh, I mean, and uh, uh, also Jeremy's comments on the lack of uh, conclusiveness of all that literature and uh, all these efforts uh, by economists to understand the relationship between growth and inequality. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, I'm too sorry to uh, discover that there is no solid universal laws uh, in, uh, in, in this field. If there were solid universal law, that would start to being really worried about precisely what is the role of policy in, in all this. Uh, uh, at the same time, it would, it would mean that uh, we are almost uh, 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 unable to uh, affect uh, the way in which uh, the evolution of the economy uh, on uh, the pure, on the GDP uh, scale uh, is uh, linked to uh, the distribution. There would be something, uh, something odd. So I don't find this result surprising. Uh, I find it, uh, as I said at the end of my presentation, encouraging the sense that it shows that there is room for, uh, uh, for uh, policy. Uh, 
Now, this means that there is a lot of country specificity uh, uh, to be uh, taken into account. Uh, fine, this is uh, true. Uh, we need uh, to be uh, uh, better in uh, the analysis that uh, we uh, make when we uh, try to do policy recommendation. Uh, but I don't think that uh, this is making things certainly uh, a little more difficult, a little uh, more uneasy. Uh, but uh, again, I don't think that this is a, a, a big uh, problem per se. Uh, on uh, inequality and crime, uh, I think that this is, uh, I was very happy that uh, uh, Alejandro Portes uh, uh, raised this, uh, this issue because uh, for uh, some time I, I, I dreamed about uh, showing that inequality was the most inefficient uh, thing that we could think of, essentially because if we could be able to show that inequality is producing crime, uh, then uh, we would have a very good argument in reducing inequality, maybe uh, improving the situation of everybody. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, it is not that uh, easy. Uh, uh, Jose uh, said already a, a few things uh, about this. Uh, I did uh, uh, some uh, intensive work uh, in this area. Uh, I believe we uh, were able, in the case of Colombia, not uh, Brazil, not uh, uh, Chile, uh, to show that uh, uh, over time, uh, looking at the seven largest cities in Colombia, there was an association between the rate of crime and the change in inequality. But uh, I cannot say that it is a very strong uh, relationship and that uh, we would get very far by reducing inequality in terms of the social cost uh, of crime. So uh, I think there is something, uh, but uh, uh, maybe we are uh, again in the area of inconclusiveness of uh, this literature, but it is worth uh, uh, keeping uh, working uh, on this. On the migration uh, remark, yes, I mean, I totally agree that this is a very important issue. At lunchtime, I had the opportunity of uh, talking with uh, some people in the, in, in the room about this. Uh, first, we have to remember, when you, when you look at uh, big flows between uh, rich and poor countries, uh, uh, the, the remittances by migrants is uh, twice the official development assistance. It is almost $100 billion when official assistance is only 50. So it is really something absolutely uh, enormous uh, and certainly would like to know what is the impact of those remittances. I'm not sure that uh, we can really say that those remittances are definitely going towards the poorest uh, in uh, the sending countries. Uh, there is a selection in uh, migration processes. This is, these are not the poorest who are uh, leaving uh, their uh, countries. Uh, so it would be, I think, very important to uh, uh, know what is the exact impact on uh, poverty, on the distribution of those remittances. Uh, the World Bank is uh, just starting a, a rather ambitious project uh, on, uh, on migration where there will be uh, several surveys uh, to understand this kind of, uh, of, of issue. On the point by uh, Jeremy on uh, uh, this uh, remark on the deep historical roots in Latin America for uh, very much inequality and, and uh, his point on uh, uh, the fact that in my presentation I didn't insist as much as in the paper on the political economy of, uh, uh, poly of redistribution, really. Uh, 
I, I, I think I love in this work by uh, Engelman, Sokolov, and uh, Asimoglu, and Robinson, and uh, this is extremely exciting. Uh, it is extremely exciting to see the way in which history uh, set uh, the path and produced institutions which in turn are reproducing uh, inequality. Now, the problem I have with this kind of approach is that if we are from the, if we look at this from the policy-making point of view, it is always difficult to interpret the conclusions of political economy arguments in the sense that basically we have nothing to say and we have nothing to do. If all policy decisions are totally endogenous and result from political economy mechanism on which we have absolutely no uh, uh, influence, then uh, what uh, can we do? Uh, and this is the reason why I believe this is uh, not enough to uh, look at the genealogy of uh, uh, inequality. Uh, if we want to be influential, we have to show to the actors of the political economy game that there may be possibilities for all uh, the actors to be gaining in some kind of policies. And uh, this is the role of the kind of uh, research uh, and the reflection that uh, uh, we have been uh, reporting on uh, today with, uh, with Revy to precisely show that maybe there are situations where uh, uh, people don't realize that there are, uh, at least intertemporally, there are uh, gains uh, to be obtained by uh, everybody, and it may be worth getting into uh, some uh, policy uh, decisions which may be detrimental to uh, one group or one class of the population uh, initially, but will be beneficial uh, in, the, uh, in the long run. And I believe that those policies uh, to which I, may, I, I alluded to, in the case of Mexico, Brazil, etc., I think that what is behind uh, this uh, decision is really this kind of argument. Uh, it was possible uh, uh, for uh, a government to convince the actors that moving in that direction would be uh, good for, uh, for everybody. Uh, I don't think that uh, in the case of those two countries, the argument for those policies was really that there was a threat uh, by the poorest part of the population uh, to uh, be violent uh, and to seize power if the other part was not accepting uh, to get into this kind of redistribution game. Uh, this was not the way in which the thing happened, uh, which means that there is room for uh, uh, this kind of improvement, but this means that we must be uh, quite clear on the way in which we uh, uh, present things. We must be more conclusive on uh, the uh, scope for uh, uh, what uh, uh, in economy we would uh, uh, call, in economy we called uh, Pareto improvement, that is improvement which will be uh, for, uh, for everybody. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, uh, very happy that uh, uh, José uh, <coughs> uh, showed these graphs on uh, uh, poverty and, uh, uh, and, uh, and GDP. Uh, I would, add, uh, would like to add one thing on the, this graph on the, where you had all the Latin American countries above the line. Uh, this was a, a graph in levels, in the sense that you had poverty on the vertical axis, you had GDP in log on the horizontal axis. But you could also have the same graph in differentials, change in poverty versus change in uh, inequality. And when you do that, then you find that again, uh, Brazil and Latin American countries are very much below, in the sense that for those countries, a 1% change in GDP per capita has a much lower impact because of the initial inequality on uh, the change in poverty. 
So this means that reducing, if it were possible to reduce inequality, and I hope it is, and that those policies, as I alluded to, uh, will be doing that, if it were possible to reduce inequality in those countries, there would be a double dividend, to say that there would be immediately less poverty, and future poverty will be reduced at a much uh, faster pace. Thank you. Um. Yeah, well, very, very quickly, I, I for one, uh, welcome the, uh, the end of certitude uh, in, these, uh, in, these, uh, in these matters, uh, because I think actually it leads to interesting analytics, and I think it leads to more honest dialogue in the policy, in the policy realm. And, um, and I think particularly for the international agencies, I think it's a very important uh, step to take to, to admit that these things are not known. Um, and then we can indeed have uh, an honest dialogue on these, uh, on these issues, and I'm sure with Francois at the, uh, at the helm of the research department of the bank now, we, we will have a more open, uh, open approach to, think, to things. Uh, secondly, just an observation on uh, inequality is relational, not just relative. I think that's ter terribly important. And uh, <clears throat> uh, some of us have been pushing this, uh, this notion that, uh, that differences between groups uh, really matter. They certainly matter in terms of positive analysis, but they perhaps even matter in terms of a normative view uh, of things. Uh, typically, the way that, uh, again, the sort of a Benthamite approach, one would take group things and you would say decompose overall uh, interpersonal inequality into a between-group component and a within-group component. If you were to do that, say, for example, for the U.S., uh, you would say that uh, uh, black-white differentials account for about 15% of overall inequality. That's a sort of rough figure. And I think a racial difference in the U.S., I would say, count for more than 15%, uh, so to speak. Uh, but actually, if you look, for example, at the, at the mean uh, differences in the group averages, that comes much closer to our sense of the importance of this, uh, of this phenomenon in a society. And that same is true in Indonesia between the Chinese and the, uh, and the, and the ethnic in Malaysia, between the Indians, Chinese, and Malays, etc. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I really uh, uh, support that, uh, that argument that inequality is relational, uh, not just uh, uh, relative. Final, final point uh, is uh, uh, Professor Fortas's point that uh, uh, the current arsenal of economics uh, may not be sufficient uh, uh, to address many of these issues. Uh, but uh, Jose mentioned the work of Engelman and Sokolov, and so on. I think that's, that gives, that's an example of how we can get somewhere with our current, with our current uh, uh, tools and techniques. I think the real challenge for us is how to, how to marry the undoubted sort of deductive power, the power of the deductive machine, uh, in, in an economic way of thinking with the techniques of nearby disciplines. I mean, that's the, it's, it's not a question of well, we'll never abandon this and take that over, but how exactly to combine those two, and that, I guess, is what I'm struggling with uh, in, in pushing this argument, uh, this discussion forward. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on that note, since it's getting very close to evening, uh, thank you so much. We reconvene at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. And we look forward to seeing you. Thank you very much.